Hello, I'm Emily Buchanan, and in this edition of Things Unseen, the podcast for people who believe there's more to life than the material world, we look ahead to Good Friday and Easter. We all face a very different Easter this year, with a country in the thick of the coronavirus crisis. Some of us may already have experienced the sudden loss of a friend or family member. Many more fear deeply that loss. So how does the Easter story of death and resurrection help at this traumatic time? Indeed, does it help at all? I'm talking to two remarkable women who survived terrible sudden bereavement and lived with it for years. Can their experience enable others to cope better? And what role does faith have? Margaret Pritchard Houston lost two babies. Both were stillborn. She now works for the Church of England as a children's ministry advisor. Maria Ahern is a barrister whose 22-year-old son James died in a car crash six years ago. She's been closely involved in the Compassionate Friends, a support network for bereaved parents. We are all three recording from home because of the need for social distancing, so the sound quality won't be quite the same as the studio. Well, thank you to you both for joining us. The current crisis is perhaps affecting you in different ways, and it seems particularly poignant at the moment to be talking about loss. Margaret, first of all, can you take us back to what happened with your two babies? I lost my first son, Isaac, at 27 weeks and four days in 2015. My waters had broken nine days earlier. I'd been hospitalised. And then I went into labour and he crashed during an emergency C-section. So I was lying there on the operating theatre table while life-saving attempts were being made on my baby about three feet away from me. It was a, a deeply traumatic and deeply upsetting event. And of course, it overshadowed my second pregnancy, which was four years later, which was much more complicated from the beginning and very difficult with the mixture of, of fear and hope. And sadly, we also lost that baby a bit earlier at 18 and a half weeks, a little boy who we called Ezra. And the anniversary of his birth and death just passed about a week ago. And with Easter on the horizon and the current situation nationwide, it's, it's a very poignant time. It's unimaginable, really, to think of the grief that you must have gone through. Uh, how would you describe your faith at that time? It was very different with both of them. Isaac was conceived after three and a half years and three rounds of IVF, and that was the reason behind his name. We connected it to Abraham and Sarah's long time in the desert before becoming parents. And so we had already been through a desert time. We had been through a challenging time, and this was the sign of hope and of new life and of God's fulfillment of the promise at the end of that. And then, of course, to lose that in such a shocking and unexpected way. You sort of feel, after 12 weeks, you sort of feel a bit safer. And then after 24, at the point of viability, you really do feel like you're basically there. We had a cot set up. We had um, a pushchair. I'd been putting clothes in the nursery. So... It was a time when I turned very instinctively to God and to a God who in particular knew what it was like to watch his son die. It was a rock that I clung to at that time and the hope of seeing him again and knowing him in a way that I've been robbed of was very strengthening. It's different the second time because 
we have a faith of of renewal and resurrection and second chances and new hope and new life. And that's where everyone was during my second pregnancy. They were saying, this is your renewal, your new life, your new hope. And then, of course, when I did lose him, when that sign of renewal and God's promise and resurrection and life coming out of death turned only into more loss, it's difficult from a faith point of view to know what to do with that. So I'm in a sort of period of wrestling. Maria, can I bring you in now? Can you tell us what happened when your son, James, was so tragically killed? It was a beautiful August midsummer day. It was the start of the football. It was the first game of the Premiership. Spurs were playing his beloved team. He and his dad were going to watch the football together. He warned me about that. Football was going to be on, so I'd best go shopping if I didn't want to watch the football, which I didn't. And he said, I love you, Mum. See you in a bit. And off he went to take his friend home. And that was the last time I saw him. He was on his way home, three miles from home, six, seven minutes. He would have been home, but he took a bend too fast, lost control of the car and died instantly. I mean, that is just uh, devastating, isn't it? No no lead up at all, no time to say goodbye, nothing to prepare you for that. No, but even if I'd had time, I don't know how I'd say goodbye. And I haven't said goodbye to James because I mm-hmm. talk to him every day and I've played it back so many times. And what if he hadn't died? What if they'd called me to the hospital? What if I'd had to switch off a life support machine? What if I'd had to do all those things? Oh, it doesn't bear thinking about. And you come from a, a Greek Orthodox family. Did any of the structures or rituals of the faith help you cope with the loss at that time? We do have rituals. And when a death happens, it, they are very much geared around the Easter story. So in the Greek Orthodox custom, you go to church on the third day. So James died on a Saturday. So on the Monday, we're expected to go and have a service for his soul. So I went to the church and I remember vividly, as soon as I walked in, everybody that was there was there because of my son being dead. And everybody was looking at me because I was the dead man's mother. And it overwhelmed me completely. And I looked up at, we have a a huge crucifix with Jesus on it, on our church. And I looked up and I just started screaming and screaming. And I was screaming at God. And I remember saying to him, how dare you? How dare you give me one child and then take him away from me? And I I was listening to Margaret saying she turned to God because he'd been through it. But I'm a lawyer and I was saying to him, I don't have your luxury. You claimed your son back. You Mm. knew he was coming home and you knew he was going to be resurrected. You had plans. You were in complete control. Now give me back mine. And I was so angry. And what happened was I fainted. Do you think that was actually a really important part of the grieving process to be able to absolutely let rip and be seriously angry with God oh totally Jamie's birthday was last week and I just screamed for most of the day 
I screamed down the phone at family and friends. I screamed in my garden. I screamed in my car. I screamed a lot. (laughs) Margaret, does that resonate with you? I mean, did you feel such anger you just wanted to scream at God? For a long time, I was too tired to be angry. It just felt like too much effort to scream. I was kind of in a bubble, you know, and I had just been... 27 weeks pregnant and then had a C-section. It was an intense physical experience. And I was recovering from an infection and I was recovering from the surgery and it just felt like too much effort. And then by the time I was physically better, I felt I was sort of past it. And then I realized a few years later, I just hadn't processed a lot of the anger at all. And I just, I don't know who to be angry with because I don't think God did it. I think it was this broken fallen world that did it this world that has the capacity to have bacteria that can kill your babies as they're being born or even with Ezra a few weeks before he was considered a a viable human so I, I don't know if it's God's fault I don't think I could worship a God who would deliberately do that but on the other hand I worship a God who created a world in which there's the potential for that. So I once found myself screaming in the car at God. And what I found myself screaming was, I know it's not your fault, but I don't know who else to scream at. So obviously you've had to, you've had to do something with it over the past few years. I mean, did did it help being part of a church community? Yes and no. And I was, I was in a unique and I think difficult position in that I was a children's worker. I had to come to church and be professional. I had to come to church and lead, which meant I kind of had to put my own stuff to the side. And so I think possibly in a way I haven't quite processed my own faith side of it as much as I should have because I've had to show up to church as a minister, not a parishioner. It must have been particularly difficult when you are dealing with families and children all the time. Yeah, and I had prided myself for a long time about being so professional that I could have an IVF cycle fail and then go and do baptism preparation that evening. And that takes a lot out of you. And when Isaac died, I realized I I couldn't do that anymore. So I took some time off and I started looking at ways in which I could make sure bereaved parents weren't just pushed to the margins, that we were included. So we changed our Mothering Sunday practice. I've done training for clergy on Baby Loss Awareness Week services and on funerals for babies and children. But I think to some extent, it does mean that I need to be better at finding the ways in which I can actually process it and not just push it to the side and show up and do a job. And did you find what some people would say about why it had happened to you. Did you find some of that difficult and insensitive sometimes? I think yes and no, because people can say incredibly thoughtless things. Maybe it wasn't meant to be, for example, can sometimes be very difficult. But I do try to remember that there's an intention behind it and that people are trying to do their best to say something. And honestly... I would much rather people said something than that they just avoided you entirely because they didn't know what to say. Mm. Even just, I don't know what to say, is better than saying nothing. I think that's absolutely right. I think that if you don't approach whatever people say as if they have some malign intention that you can forgive, anger can be very heavy. 
And if anger is heavy, it suppresses your ability to deal with your grief. Your grief has to rise to the surface so that you can deal with it. I lost my anger very, very quickly. I realized, as with Margaret, there was no point in being angry. I had no one to be angry with. Jamie was alone in the car. I definitely wasn't going to be angry with him. And so if you allow anger to take control, it's sitting on top of your grief and you can't deal with your grief. When you are catapulted into grief, it's a new language, it's a new roadmap. And people who haven't been there don't understand it. You yeah. Drop me in the middle of Siberia and I won't know what to do. But the fact that people are talking to you is better than those that don't. I had people crossing the street to avoid me. I had people walking towards where I was standing, spotting me and doing an about turn. And I knew it wasn't anything I'd done. I knew that they couldn't cope and they didn't speak my new language. And some of them went off and learnt it and got in touch with the compassionate friends and, and have researched to try to learn my language. And to those, I'm eternally grateful. But I'm never going to be angry again. That's a big statement. Well, I mean, oh, yeah, I might be angry that I didn't win the lottery or I might be angry if I drop a milk bottle, that kind of anger. But I'm not angry at my grief anymore. My grief comes with me everywhere. And if anything, it's my constant companion. Now, do I want to live my life with a companion that I'm constantly angry with? Or might I as well make friends with this thing because it's never going to leave me? So we need to find an accommodation. Can we move on to Easter, which is mm. almost upon us? What sort of meaning does the whole Easter period have for you both now? I mean, Maria, one of the central characters in the story is Mary, Jesus' mother, standing Absolutely. at the foot of the cross, seeing yes. her son die. So do you just totally relate to that? And do you, from that, then also believe in the resurrection? My first Easter... I wrote a long article about Mary and I called her the original bereaved mother. For me, Easter is about that lady, whoever she was, real, mythical, whoever she is to whoever is thinking about her. Her story is the central story for me now at Easter. She had to watch her son die on the cross, helpless, could do nothing about it and then had to survive in a world that had been turned upside down by his loss. So she is the person that I communicate with during this time. And for me, the resurrection isn't about her son coming back in true form. I don't know what was going on at the time, and I don't know what really happened, but what I believe is that what happened to Mary and the people who loved the person that was Jesus was that they had a kind of awakening, a kind of epiphany, and they realised that they could forge a relationship with him, in Mary's case, with her child, even though he was no longer in physical form. And that's what I mean when I say I talk to James, I have conversations with him, I still have a relationship with him, it's a completely different relationship to the one we had, 
I was going to say, we used to hug a lot. I suppose if he was here now, that, that might not be on the cards either. But Jamie and I had a very tactile, very physical hugging, kissing, joking, tickling. We did a lot of physical stuff together. And obviously we can't do that now. But I write to him. I have a blog thing that I published my conversations with him. He's still very funny. He's very wise. And I know he's, he's never going to be resurrected. Of course he's not. But my relationship with him has been, definitely. And do you feel you will be sort of reunited with him in a different form after you die? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, he's not going to be wearing his skinny jeans and his white T-shirt and look gorgeous. He's not going to be the James that was here. That's physical stuff that's gone. We need to look inside ourselves. And James and I, our energies will be reunited I have to believe that. And let's face it, if I'm wrong about that, what have I lost? And Margaret, what about you? After Isaac and Ezra died, uh, were you able to sort of relate to the Easter story and the whole the idea of hope and, and resurrection after what you'd been through? Similar to Maria, the figure of Mary at the cross and Mary placing her son in the tomb meant a great deal to me. In fact, Orthodox icons, Maria, I'm sure you've seen of the nativity, have Jesus wrapped in the swaddling clothes and put in a stone box and Mary is leaning over and kissing him. And then icons of the entombment replicate that imagery. You have Jesus in his grave clothes instead of swaddling bands. You have the sarcophagus instead of the manger and you have Mary leaning over and kissing him. And there's that clear connection of birth and death. And for me, with Isaac, especially because it was the first time it was so unfamiliar, I was trying to find a way, that connection of birth and death meant a huge amount. And then in 2016, the year after he died, the Feast of the Annunciation was on Good Friday, which is an incredibly precious thing that only happens every century or so. And so you got that uniting of Mary becoming a mother and losing her son at the same time. And so all of that was incredibly meaningful to me. But it's also sort of felt like, oh, you'll see him again at the resurrection. It, it's kind of, oh, well, great. That doesn't give me what, back what we lost. That doesn't fix it. That's not something that makes it okay. And Easter, Lent and Easter used to be my favorite time of the year, you know, holding in that, that austerity for so long and then going deep into all that rich imagery of sacrifice and death and then that new life bursting uncontainable even by death out of the tomb it was incredible and I find it so hard to move past Good Friday now and I find it so hard to feel that Easter is this release of joy because I never got that and it feels like seeing them again in paradise or whatever it looks like to some extent it's a consolation prize and that might be because when a baby or a child or a young person dies, it's unnatural and they're robbed of something. I don't feel that. I believe that James had a complete life, but it was shorter. He was completely loved by so many people. And still, on Mother's Day, his friends come and bring me flowers and bring me cards. And he gathered people of a kind of insurance policy and unstated, if I'm not here to look after her, you guys Mm. have to. And of course, I miss him with every sinew of my body, every moment, with every breath. But I don't feel that he was robbed. I I know that I was, but he, he finished. 
I suppose it's it, it's difficult, isn't it, Margaret, when there's all that potential. I mean, you, it, it's it's how you grieve a person that was never able to live even beyond birth. Every loss is unique. So there's no one right or wrong way to feel about it. I feel, looking especially at the people who were pregnant both times at the same time I was, and watching their children grow up and seeing their first day of school photos and seeing their drawings and seeing them learn how to do stuff that Isaac and Ezra will never learn how to do. And knowing that I will never sit and help them with their homework or take them to the park or pack a lunch for them or go to one of their stupid school concerts or football games. And I, I will never have grandchildren from them. Those people just won't exist. I won't know their friends mm. from school. There's this sort of parallel life that you're living of the what if. I should be working at home with a, a four-year-old and a baby. And I'm not. And there's this part of my mind that's just always going over that parallel life. And I, I don't know how the resurrection works, but I know that what we have lost on earth is real and that whatever the resurrection looks like, there is still a real, genuine loss of a life that should have been, of two lives that should have been. That's absolutely true. There is definitely no right or wrong. And it does depend on how much time you had with your child and how much you got to do with them. I remember talking to somebody whose child was nine hours old mm -hmm. and she asked me, how do you cope? And I said, the truth, my truth is I cope with the memories, his smile and all those things that I knew about him and I know about him. And she said, well, how do I know that when my child was nine hours old? And I was stumped because her reality is completely different to mine. How do you both sustain yourselves? You've, you've talked about the grief. You've talked about, in a sense, the, the, the limits to what your faith can give you. How do you actually get through each day? Does it help by helping others? Is that the key? It definitely helps to talk about their lives for me and to use that to help other people support bereaved families because then I feel like their lives have a legacy. You know, the fact that they existed has changed the world. But at the same time, you're walking this this weird tightrope where you want people to know this about you and you want them to acknowledge that and to realize that things are difficult for you sometimes. But you also don't want to be pitied because this is a horrible thing that's happened to me. It's a horrible thing that happened to me twice, but it's also not the sum total of who I am. So I want people to acknowledge that but also to go, hey, you know what, Margaret, you're still you. You still love going to the theatre. You still have this dark sense of humour. You know, you still love cake. So let's go out and get some cake, you know, when we're able to go out and get cake again. Yeah, that's exactly how I feel. I want James to be remembered. Just being able to say his name now on a podcast, I could just see him bouncing around saying, Mom, Mom, are you talking about me? And his legacy must be that people... Remember him, people as well. We've got a foundation in his name. I do a lot of work with the Compassionate Friends. It's living each day the best way you can to honour my child. I also buy them Christmas presents every year for children who the age that they would be now, and I donate them. And I get books on their birthdays for children the age that they would be, and I donate them to, to an organisation in my local library. And that's a way that I can still be their mum, 
I can do the normal mum stuff of including them in my Christmas shopping and marking mm. their birthdays. And then I can also give them a positive effect on the world as a result of them having been here. And does it help trying to find some kind of meaning in why it happened? Or do you basically just have to live with the, the randomness, if you like, of this tragedy? I fluctuate. I ask whether there is some meaning. But then again, the practical lawyer side of me says, you know, this isn't a puzzle where if you can solve it, he comes back. <laughs> you know, it's not the crystal maze. So then I, I find myself just parking that and, and thinking, no, this is random. It's happened. I'm not the only person it's happened to. It's too heavy. Don't try to analyse it too much. Accept it. Acceptance in the small a, acclimatising to your new environment and accepting that you're in it helps a lot. And Margaret, what about you? How do you come to any kind of acceptance of what's happened? Similarly, I had this weird sense at the coroner's inquest with Isaac that if we figured out where it went wrong, someone would go in the back room and bring him out. Um, And you get get into that sort of weird magical thinking. And I think trying to find a reason is, I think it's a minefield because then almost if you find a reason, it has to be a good thing. Like, oh, he died to teach me how strong I was. And I don't think God plays that kind of dice with the universe. I don't think God would kill babies to teach me some moral lesson. So I think it is just, it's one of those things. This world is broken. This world is messed up. Can I swear? Can I say shit happens? No. (laughs) Stuff happens. And that's just the world we live in. And on this occasion, it happened to me. Do you think the experience that both of you have had, this terrible experience, has something that can teach people now. I mean, we're going through a terrible pandemic. People are losing people, relatives, that they didn't think they were going to lose very suddenly. What do you think you can say to people now, especially as people are so isolated and can't connect in the same way to comfort each other? It's beyond our control. We have this belief that we can control everything, And that we can stop people dying. If we could stop people dying, Margaret's babies would still be with her. And my son would probably be getting married and making me a grandmother one day. We can't control it. We can only control how we respond to it. And take the advice, respond with kindness. Be the best person you can be. Because we can't stop it. And Margaret? Yeah, I 100% agree. Your world completely ends when you lose someone suddenly and traumatically. And you sort of feel like you've died as well. And then you realise you haven't. You've sort of been walking around kind of like a zombie. You know, one of the readings this year for Lent in the Anglican Church is Lazarus. And I wonder how he felt when he was resurrected, what it felt like to be alive again. I, I sort of feel like I've, I can understand that because your world ends. The bottom falls out of it. You feel like you've died with your child, but you're still moving. And then you have to do the work of resurrecting yourself. And it's really hard. You have to bring yourself yeah. back to life. And it's almost like giving birth again. But then you do it and the sun still rises and... You still have this life to live. And what are you going to do with it? 
because what happened with us was the curtain was torn back and the insecurity that had always been there was revealed. We felt really safe and secure and then we realized we weren't. And I think a lot of people are realizing that right now. And so knowing that yeah. something could happen at any time, what are you going to do with your life? Or just what are you going to do with today? Because yeah. sometimes that's all you can see. Yeah. That's a very interesting yeah. thought, the idea I, I, of resurrecting yourself. Yes, Maria, please. Yeah. I totally, totally agree. I used to say, most parents would say, I can't live without that boy. If anything happens to him, I will die. These are the comments that most parents will have made, your worst nightmare, your worst fear. But I did live. I did. They told me my child was dead and I was still alive. And we have these rituals, so I had to plan a funeral and I had to get yeah. organised and I had to do those things. But then the rituals finish, the funeral finishes, everyone retreats, and then I'm left with this world, this empty world. And the picture is very similar to what's going on now. You know, this completely alien landscape... And I had to fumble my way through it. Imagine you suddenly go blind. That's mm. what it was for like for me. You suddenly lose your sight and actually your legs and arms stop working and you can't hear. But you're still breathing and you have to carry on. Thank you so much, Maria Ahern, Margaret Pritchard-Houston. I really appreciate talking to you and what an uplifting message to end on. I'm Emily Buchanan and the producer of this Good Friday and Easter edition was Christina Pommet. Things Unseen is brought to you by CTVC. And you can hear this programme again and find other editions of Things Unseen at www.thingsunseen.co.uk.